Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I talk with Sarah Rudin about her new book, The Face of Water, a translator on beauty and meaning in the Bible, published in February 2017 by Pantheon Books. Sarah Rudin was educated at the University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard, from which she graduated with a PhD in classical philology. She has translated six books of classical literature and contributed her Aeschylus Orestia to a collection of tragedy in English. Her translation of Augustine's Confessions was her first book-length work of sacred literature. She's also the author of a book of poetry, Other Places, and a book about the Apostle Paul, Paul Among the People. Rudin is a visiting scholar at Brown University and lives in Hamden, Connecticut. I hope you enjoy t- today's conversation. Sarah Rudin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Before we get into your background as a classicist, I wonder if you begin by talking about your time in South Africa. As I've read your essays over the years, I even started to think you might be South African. Um, it has clearly played a formative influence in your thinking and writing and has also given you a unique vantage point as a writer and as a poet. Um, Why were you there? And how would you say that your time there has influenced you? Uh, Well, uh, it's a bit of a long story. Um, I um, started a Harvard um, classics program, at at, um, a doctoral program at the age of 21. (laughs) So that was a very bad (laughs) decision. And um, I was more or less... um, shot up in libraries for um, the whole program. And so um, when I, here I was, you know, 30, 31, and um, got my degree and had really no experience um, as, except as an academic. That was my entire adult experience at, at that point. And um, the Harvard Department had a connection to the South African Department, or sorry, the Cape Town Department, in, in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. And um, so, um, yeah, this was at the moment when I was looking for a job. So I interviewed by phone and I went out there sight unseen uh, as a lecturer, that's a junior professor at the University of Cape Town. And I had the most astonishing time. It was very difficult. This was... Um, 1994. So um, I came just uh, three months before the first multiracial elections in in um, in May of of 94, and I voted in those elections because I was a new per, um, a new permanent resident in South Africa. And through the Quakers, I was quite in, involved in um, nonprofits, in development work 
in um, political causes. Um, it was a very, very exciting time in South Africa, though um, I would say also an extremely difficult time. Wow. How much did you know going in about the political cl climate there? Were you fully aware or was it uh, like, had you read a lot about the cultural um, moment before you went or was that kind of an immersive experience? I knew pretty much nothing. <laughs> I, had, I had read a couple of classic uh, anti-apartheid novels um, and I had seen protest shacks uh, on lawns in the Ivy League and this was really just about just about it. Um, so I, I had, you know, it, it just had not been my habit to think about public life much. That, of course, when I went to South Africa, I had to think about it with a vengeance because it was literally on my doorstep. Um, there was a great deal of, of social upheaval at, at the time. And I stayed until 2000, 2005 with about eight, an 18 month break uh, back in the, back in the U S a oh, total so, of 18 months. Like that, so back here. more than a decade you were there. Well, not in total, but say around 10 years, uh -huh. um, altogether. Oh, I wow. mean, not, not continuously. Right. Right. And so then did you complete your studies, um, at Harvard or, at Cape Town. Oh, at Harvard, yes. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so, what led you to become a translator of the classics? Were you a poet first and then a translator, or the other way around? Or was there something in particular about the period that drew you to it in that regard? Well, I was a poet from about the age of one, <laughs> according according to my parents. Um, I, I learned to speak very early and I liked rhythm and rhyme a great deal. So they thought I was, I would just bounce off the walls and I would hear something and I would learn it immediately. And then I would start variations on it. And, um, uh, I just always seemed to, to like using language in that, in that way. So I always, I've always thought of myself primarily as a, as a poet. I had, um, extremely difficult adolescence and, you know, informed opinion about me at that age, um, you know, was, was uncertain as to, you know, whether I would be able to do anything, um, you know, was, was I going to have to be institutionalized? I was in such bad shape. Um, but French, um, that I discovered, which I discovered at the age of 14, just the ordinary junior high French class, um, was a great revelation for me because language was something I could do. Um, I could do on my own, get my mind around it very efficiently and um, really perform in it academically. So um, ancient languages were sort of no-brainer for me. Uh, I could imagine myself doing this all my life, um, working in a technical capacity, not having to deal with, with other people, with those stresses. Um, so, yeah, I got, I got through the University of, of Michigan in, in three years with a classics degree and uh, marched off to Harvard. Very bad idea, you know, to make a, a career commitment um, when you're so immature. And 
at Harvard, I, I really, well, you know, I worked very hard, probably too hard, um, and um, had a breakdown and decided that what I really wanted to do was, was write. So they were, my teachers were, were wringing their hands. They didn't know what to do with me. I said, well, yeah, you, know, you seem to be able to write pretty well, but this happens to be a classics department. Uh, and I, I, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to go to the University of Cape Town because they were starting a creative writing program at the time. J.M. Kutzeel was there, and there was a lot of interest in um, integrating um, Black African and White African writing, you you had all these these um, very eminent anti-apartheid writers, such as such as J.M. Kutsia, and um, then there were emerging Black writers too at the time. So um, the the creative writing program didn't really get started in time for me to participate much. So, uh, but that was that was really the main reason I was there. Okay, so um, when did you? Uh, actually, I should back up and say, did was your first exposure to the classical languages in um, high school, like learning Latin, as many kind of classical curriculums do, or did you? When when were you in, first introduced to those languages? Oh well. Um, I, I started learning them um, during high school. Um, I was 16, and the high school didn't offer Latin because um, the Latin teacher had been reassigned to teaching typing mm-hmm. a number of years before. So uh, there was there was Latin offered at the university, though. So that's where my my father taught. So all I had to do was was hike across town after school to to Latin class, and that was wonderful. I I enjoyed that so very much. The two professors there at the time were experts in spoken Latin, and, and there's a spoken Latin movement that that is worldwide and and uh, quite vital. Though of course it's not. Uh, not very populous, but but um, there there are a number of a certain number of people who are really passionate about speaking Latin, and both professors, both classics professors at Bowling Green State University were. So um, I was excited about them. They were excited about me, and um, this was this was kind of a dream come true for me because. Uh, uh, my my world was one of words, and and words just sort of inhabited me, and I really um, I just loved poetic language and and in Latin, of course, and mm-hmm. you know in other languages, uh, even prose is poetic. The sound is very very important. Mm-hmm. Now, was your first published translation the Satyricon, or had you done other work before that? Well, I had done some other work, but but hadn't published a book. Okay, the Chiricon is the first book. Okay. Uh, so I worked on um, Virgil's Eclogues. Uh, these are bucolic poems. The the first um, 
uh, works that, that Virgil published. So that was my undergraduate thesis, and it won a prize. <laughs> very, very exciting. Uh, and the Satyricon was my dissertation uh, my dissertation book, so I was writing writing about that, and then uh, first published a a, a book. A, a, a translation of, of the Satyricon as a book. That right. Oh, well, I'm a f- I'm before a f- that, oh, sorry, sorry. Before that, um, I had published a book of poetry in South Africa. Um, and I won um, the Central News Agency Literary Award for, for that. And was that part of uh, the creative writing program? Is that when you focused uh, on, on, the, on the writing of those poems when you were there? I, I guess so, yeah. I only taught a couple of adult education courses in the creative writing program, but mm-hmm. uh, I was writing like mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking of myself really as a South African poet. You know, I was trying to fit into um, the South African culture and South African ideas. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, the poetry book, it's called Other Places, It it is about... Well, predominantly about um, uh, the place of Christianity in, a, in an extremely troubled society. What was the name of that uh, collection? Other Places. Other Places. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, what I was going to say about the Satyricon is that, you know, the, I, I backed into an awareness of this when I um, read uh, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, because the criticism made some comparisons, or I guess Fitzgerald himself um, made some connection uh, to the Satyricon, and I, I wasn't aware of it previously. And um, so it's one of these things where a great work of literature gets mentioned in another great work of literature, and then you go trying to find the reference to, uh, you know, to establish an, a connection or interpretation. So, um, uh, that was I remember that very vividly in my undergraduate years. Um, so um, just to skip over, uh, you, you wrote a number of uh, 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 translated a number of works, uh, which unfortunately we can't uh, talk that much about here. But um, I want to skip over to uh, uh, your work on uh, the Apostle Paul because it has some connection to the new book. And in fact, in the new book, Face of the Face of Water, uh, you write, don't get me started on the Apostle Paul. And I'd like to avoid your own caution here and ask, uh, (laughs) why does the Apostle Paul get such a bad rap? Well, I think he's, um, he's in the position of a good parent. Um, or uh, say, um, you know, think of a fairly dysfunctional household and um, one parent is really trying um, and one parent is, you know, fighting a good fight um, in a an unfavorable environment. Um, that's the parent of, um, at which the children will tend to direct their anger because he was or she was unable to remake the world and wasn't unable to, you know, protect the children to the degree that they thought um, was necessary, probably was in fact necessary. 
and so um, I think you got to you got to think of Paul in context in in the ancient world. Um, he's very much the good parent. He he is solidly against the major brutalities of pagan life. You know, he's against pederasty. Um, he is um, against the idea that slaves are subhuman, that they are a, a walking, that they are walking, talking machines, um, and um, you know that any needs they have, that any human needs they have, are are, are simply inconveniences. Um, and um, you know, he he does not seem to be a person who is very friendly toward toward you know all the various violence of of of, of pagan society. Um, so um, he 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 doesn't though get the get the credit for this. You know, as a good parent in a dysfunctional household, doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't get the can't 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 do anything right. Um, so I I really deeply believe that um, to a certain extent. Um, the um, liberal culture, the human rights culture that we enjoy today is thanks to him. Hmm. Because he he um, brought over um, some very humane elements from Hebrew culture and um, you know, some uh, really positive ideas from, from uh, Jewish thinking and um, grafted, grafted them on in onto Europe. I'm really sure that, that he was the key person to do, to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that kind of, no, no good deed goes unpunished, and that, you know, that kind of heroism will come back and, and bite you in the fanny, uh, because, you know, women who, I think, in the long run, um, owe their, their liberation to, to Paul, Probably more than any other single person um, are annoyed, you know, that that he was not, he wasn't the perfect feminist, right? But he, but he it, was, it, he was, yeah, he was a he was a feminist to a, a you know very great degree, uh, a heroic feminist for his his time, you know, and for the places where where he was where he was active. But you know, he he certainly isn't a feminist up to our standards. So right. rather than give credit, we blame him. Well, I think we see glimpses of this in like in Galatians, for instance, where he says in Christ, there is no male nor female, uh, nor slave, nor free, uh, nor Jew, nor Gentile. It's uh, and um, but I think what what's so uh, so you, you see those, you know, things that actually transfer into English fairly well. But I think what's so um helpful and astonishing about your book is the way you bring comparative literature to bear on the texts of Paul's letters um, to actually illuminate cases where where the, the text itself isn't uh, isn't determinative of the proper like a lot of his guidance, for instance, uh, about, uh, you know, women, women wearing a veil in church. Um, here's an example where you really uh, have you bring some other uh, uh, comparisons of literature at the time to actually show, um, actually, maybe I should have you explain what, what is going on there, but I, 
as as I was thinking back on that book, I was really mindful of the problem of sola scriptura in this sense, this notion of reading scripture on its own without any aid or authority, and that reading Paul in isolation, or indeed reading him not among the people, you know, to uh, to riff on the title of your book, can make him seem backward and regressive rather than radically transformed by his encounter with Christ. Um, so can you can you just uh, elaborate on the the veil uh, imagery because I think it's very helpful to see that context which drops out from the actual text. Right. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm talking about the veils the veils passage in First Corinthians, and uh, it is a fairly snarky passage. Um, you know, he is uh, hectoring, scolding women. Uh, you know, there has been obviously some kind of controversy about the wearing of veils. And you do have to go back, uh, I think, first of all, to, to law and custom. And um, those say that um, women and um, older girls in um, uh, the middle, well, that's a, that's an iffy term, but, uh, you know, let's say the, the bourgeois and, and aristocratic classes um, in, among the Greeks and Romans, they had to wear veils. Um, and the veil was the sign of their status and their protection. So you put on a veil and um, you could go out in public, you could uh, participate to a certain degree, and um, you could the veil was analogous to um, the, the slaves who accompanied you. Um, nobody could touch you <laughs> if you were in that veil, um, and if you had your if you had your little entourage, there would be hell to pay, you know, if anybody bothered you. Whereas uh, freed women and slave women, it's unclear and it was probably different in different places, but. It, it looks as if they weren't even permitted to wear the veil. That would be a sort of um, disguise for them. It would be illegitimate uh, because it would say it would give them in public a status that they, that they didn't have. But to be bareheaded meant that um, you know any man could harass you, could grab you, uh, could could make your life miserable uh, because you didn't you didn't have that special special symbol of authority, and that's how. That's how um, Paul puts it. You know, the, the veil is about um, authority. Um, so he really seems to me that what he seems to me to be getting at in this in this passage is that um, he wants every woman within the assembly to be wearing the veil because he doesn't want any nonsense. He doesn't mm-hmm. want disruptions. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want he doesn't want women bothered. He doesn't want a sexual undertone or overtone, you know, to this gathering, which is already a bit edgy, because you know women and women and men who are you know all ages and classes and and they're not related. They're gathering. They're gathering here to worship, to gather indoors, um, not not outdoors. And that was the more common pagan way to worship, um, you know. It is, um, you know, sub, uh, a subject of sneers, of, of rumors, 
and pagans are saying, well, what are they, what are they doing? What are they doing there? Of course, there were horrible rumors about incest because um, of believers addressing each other as brother and sister. Um, hmm. cannibalism, of mm-hmm. course, yeah. uh, because of, because of, uh, you know, uh, the, the words of, of the, the Eucharist, right. uh, you know, eating body, drinking blood. Um, right. That's in Celsus, I think, uh, observing uh, about, uh, observing the early Christians and kind of being bewildered by this language. Right. Yeah. So it was probably already, uh, uh, it looked iffy from the outside. Mm-hmm. The early, probably even the very early Christi, Christian assembly uh, was starting was looking rather rather iffy. Um, so yeah, I I kind of read that that Paul is creating a safe space for women, and he says, um, you know, quite clearly, wear the veil when you speak. That mm-hmm. is, when you when you you uh, you speak in assembly. Um, you prophesy, you, you say what you're inspired to say. Um, it's clear from those verses that he's fine with women doing that, with women speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and other verses that seem to say, no, women can't speak are, are interpreta- interpolations. Uh, you know, they come from a later pseudo, pseudo-Pauline source. Anyway, um, what, I, what I picture, and um, there are some rather hilarious um, uh, works of Greco-Roman literature that, that back this up. Uh, he, what what Paul pictures is that the woman is speaking. She's got her face covered, so it doesn't matter uh, what age she is, um, how attractive she is. Uh, it doesn't matter what class she belongs to, whether she's got you know expensive jewelry um, hanging from her ears and her and her neck. Uh, she's she's got her whole upper body covered. Um, so it's her words that are important mm-hmm. and, um, they ideally, I think in Paul's head, nobody can tell whether she, uh, say the wife of a magistrate so that um, you're, you're going to have a crap beaten out of your, you, if you yeah. insult her uh-huh. or whether she's, or whether she's an ordinary slave girl, um, who enjoys no such protection. He wants, he wants women to be the same. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and to be on a footing with men in speaking in the assembly. Yeah, it's 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 really uh, that chapter in particular, you know, struck struck me as being just so illuminating. And for that reason, and for many others, I recommend Paul among the people uh, to um, to friends and anyone interested in looking at the way Paul has been received and perhaps misinterpreted. But let's uh, let's turn to your new book, The Face of Water, uh, where you focus on uh, seven passages in the Hebrew Bible and seven passages in the New Testament, often pairing them side by side as a way of teasing out the difficulties of rendering the Hebrew or the Greek into English. Um, how did you decide on those 14 passages? And I'm curious, was there a lot left on the cutting room floor? And which one was the hardest to write about? Oh goodness, there was so much left on the on the cutting room floor. I had um yeah, I, I made so many I wouldn't say they were false starts because I learned a lot, but um I did a great deal of research that doesn't, you know, go directly into this this book. I looked at at a, a number of passages besides these. Um I thought of uh two things. I, I thought of um 
discussing the, the major passages, the most important ones. That is, you know, what, what will people be most curious about um, uh, within the Bible? And, um, uh, but I also, uh, I also chose, um, with a, with a view to my own interests, I, ch- I chose passages that, that spoke to me more. Um, so among the prophets, for example, you can go in many directions, uh, because that, those works aren't, aren't so well known. So I, I chose Ezekiel's. Um, dry bones passage, um, and I chose it for it. It is a really important passage about resurrection. Um, it was inspirational to New Testament writers. Very, very certainly, uh, it was uh, very important for for Jewish history. Uh, but you know, the reason that I chose it was that um, a young friend of mine in in South Africa uh, who was uh, an American, and uh, actually ended up staying in South Africa. Uh, he's a he's an editor and a great promoter of of African literature. Now, anyway, he at the time was really young. He was about twenty two, and um, he had he was go he was just extremely excited uh, about the new South Africa. He was going around meeting people, and you know he he told me once that he had he had touched. He had touched Mandela, and he had, you know. And another time, he was very excited because he had he had you know, shaken Bishop Tutu's hand. Anyway, I think it was after he had shaken Bishop Tutu's hand that um, you know he was in my kitchen and he was dancing and singing. Ezekiel connected them, dry bones, Ezekiel connect them, dry bones, Ezekiel connect them, dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. And of course you you've named bones one after another. So yeah, I I um chose that uh passage, you know, because uh I remembered my friend and I I really appreciate because of him I appreciate that as a celebratory passage, uh passage about about new life, about hope, about uh, you know, if you will, the arc of history bending toward bending toward justice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. um the uh, I'm just looking for the passage, uh, and uh, one just verse eleven, um, and he said to me, "Mortal man, the bones you see here are the whole house of Israel, and here in your hearing." They are saying, our bones are dried out and our hope has perished. We are hacked away from ourselves. Um, which is um, a striking way of putting it. Um, and you compare well, that to the King James. And... Um, yeah, uh, that's a, a really difficult um, bit to translate. Um and I think I think I was more literal there mm. than the King James is, hacked away from ourselves. And um, gosh, when you think when you think about Africa, that that image really uh, it, floor, it floors me. Yeah. Um, there's there's so many parallels that I see 
between um, the human rights situation of, of Africa and of the ancient world. Um, you know, both are um, environments in which, you know, bones hacked away from themselves are a reality. Mm-hmm. This is not a metaphor. Right. You know, people people are <clears throat> slaughtered, and their bones are, um, or um, you know, they are they are mutilated, um, and um, just left that way. You know, corpses corpses in the grass, mm-hmm. or or people who will who will live the rest of their lives with you know terrible mutilations, and no no hope of earthly justice. Right. On the other hand, you talk about, um, very effectively, I thought, about the tiny lamb. Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to emphasize there? Oh, yes. Okay, the Revelations passage, yes? Oh, yes, because this is what you you paired this with. um, Right, isn't that the pairing? Um, Maybe I've got it. Yeah, Ezekiel is paired with uh, Revelation in... uh, um, where you pair them together in your analysis, um, and then um, um, that was right. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's there's this um, curious word um, arnion um, in, um, and it's it's the only word used for lamb uh, throughout throughout Revelations, and it's really not clear, you know, what the, you know local influence or um the 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 dialect influence might have been or, or the influence of, of the particular period in which in which revelation was written and we, we can't date it very very accurately but all through revelation you get only um not lamb but little lamb a cute little lamb lamblet mm-hmm. and um, you know that that word is uh, rare in the rest of in the rest of the New Testament, and I think non-existent in the um, Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew Bible. I don't think you have a single instance of of Arneon. I would have to check that though. Anyway, it's very striking. You only have the little lamb in um, Revelation, and you have the special, very special imagery of the lamb. The lamb sits um, on a on a throne, so you have it's like a like a little you know Maltese Maltese dog, um, you know, in an executive power chair. Um, it's it is it is something something like that. So tiny lamb, you know, big throne surrounded by celestial worshippers. Hmm. And it's it's a pet, hmm. and you know one thing that makes you can go at this from a lot a lot of angles. One thing that makes it it really interesting is that um, the the Passover lamb, the lamb that you're going to kill and eat, uh, is is kept as a pet in your house. Um, this is uh, this is the um, Jewish prescription. Um, you don't just you know go to the um, um, you know, go to the marketplace and buy uh, prepared, you know, roast lamb in a shell. Uh, this this lamb is is um, a creature who is who has lived in your house 
for a little while, and you know your children have fussed over it and played with it, and and then you slaughter it, and you eat it. So uh, that to me was really striking. You know, for the the Passover ritual, the proper thing to do is is you make you make a pet out of this animal, and then you then you then you kill it, and then you eat it. So the sacrifice, the imagery of sacrifice, is something very very immediate uh, to people with a Jewish background um, in the in the ancient world. So um, the sight of this, you know, little animal on the throne is, I think, especially as as um, heightened by the special language used about that. Uh, this image is really gut wrenching. Right, and the, the connection here is with. Uh, it's in the context of talking about the martyrs, which is also how it ties to the uh, the violence that you've mentioned about the dry bones. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, the martyrs are, they're wearing this um, posh, you know, shining white, uh, beautiful clothing. That's very technically that that clothing is hard to produce. Uh, you know, bleaching is a difficult, laborious process in the ancient in the ancient world. Um, wool is kind of gray or kind of brown um, nor, normally, uh, and then linen. You you can have linen, but you still have to uh, bleach it. You have to to uh, render it shining, shining white. It's pure. Uh, but the martyrs um, that you see. Um, in, in Revelation, celebrating, celebrating in, in heaven in, this, in these gorgeous robes, um, you know, uh, had bloody deaths and dirty deaths, you know, were um, hacked up and dragged around uh, the arena. Some of some of them, uh, they were they were killed for they were killed for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the contrast of, of those robes. Uh, in their case, I think is uh, quite um, intense, emotionally intense. Yeah. Well, before we move on to another example, um, one of the one of your passages um, <clears throat> uh, later in the book actually struck me as touching on really what you're uh, what you're doing throughout the book, and you um, uh, you you talk a little bit about the various translations that are available, even the venerable King James. And, you know, when confronted with this, uh, you say, um, uh, confronted with this long flowing regalia like, but quite holy tradition of what the Bible says, a translator deeply concerned with the exact meanings and the effects of the original texts has a lot of extra explaining to do. I have to tell people that some of what they've heard or learned and what in some cases they're deeply attached to isn't the case. Not only are they used to translations that are far precise, but in some places the Bible's actual authors probably gave no basis whatsoever for the standing English translations, precise or not. Can you elaborate a little bit on that point and how it applies to what you're doing throughout the book? Um, Yes, um, you have... um uh you have a lot of instances of 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 you know strict inaccuracy in, in the bible um and that 
really um, uh, that that goes way way back and is sanctioned from from way way back. Uh, and the the Masoretes, for example, who are um, a medieval group of, of of learned Jews who did a very great deal to to enshrine and preserve the the Jewish Bible, um, have a principle called Kirekatif. Um, so, um, and it means that what is um, uh, there's one thing written and there's another thing read. So uh, the, the thing that is written in um, the Hebrew, and they lovingly you know preserve every letter of it, um, is uh, would be for for example Yahweh, um, God's the name of God or one of the names of God, but you you're not supposed to read, you're not supposed to pronounce pronounce that word out loud. Um, so um, you're supposed to say Adonai or or Lord. Uh, you know, literally, literally, my Lord. And um, so that is that is indicated in the text. Um, you know, you have a, a you know, a, a special um, indication written written into the, the Hebrew text that um, in the margins that that um, no, you don't you don't actually say the word that's in the Bible. You say another word that we want you to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a very uh, respectful and circumspect way of of um, changing that changing the text. Um, right. But and, the, <clears throat> and the specific example you give in that uh, in this context, right after the passage I read, um, you're talking about First Corinthians thirteen three, where Paul very likely didn't write about his willingness to give my body to be burned, which is a traditional way of translating that when really it's give up my body so that I can boast about it. Um, yeah. Mm. Now that's a, that's a question of textual corruption, that one. So, oh, okay. you know, here, here's another kind of inaccuracy um, that, that comes into play. Um, the, the translators are working with a corrupt text. Um, and so the Greek uh, very, very likely um talked about boasting rather than burning. Um, and um, this is a theological matter. So the, the real best um, text, the most likely text, is only, you know, um, likely to be emerging in the, you know, um, 18th, 19th century, maybe even the 20th century. That's when we actually know, because we have, we can look at the full range of, of manuscripts and do all the, you know, uh, uh, scientific technical work um, that's necessary um, to figure out, yeah, what this did probably say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the translation tradition, you know, goes goes way, way back. It's it's. Uh, just goes back to the dark ages, uh, you know, when people were were um, you know starting to to come up with vernacular uh, translations, say into Old English. Um, so, uh, and then you get this great flowering of, of biblical translation around the the Renaissance. So, all of this translation is done on the basis of really crummy, corrupt, um, late manuscripts. So the the mm-hmm. the the problems get embedded 
So that's a, that's another source of inaccuracy. Right. Well, let's take a look at a, an example uh, before we have to wind down our time together. Um, that's where the language is very familiar. It's been built into liturgies, um, and you know, it's uh, something even school children memorize. It's the twenty third Psalm. Um, I, how about if I read the uh, King James Version, and then maybe you could read uh, your own translation, and we can uh, pause to consider some of the choices that you made. Um, so this is the King James Version of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my... Uh, sh- oh, yes? Oh, sorry. Can you give me a, a page number there? Uh, 136. Got it. 136. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I did have this marked. Okay. That's Okay. Okay. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. Okay. So take us through Um, this. All right. Um, Do you want to hear my um, speculative translation? Yes, absolutely. Okay. The Lord is the one pasturing me. I will never go without. He will always invite me to stretch out in pastures full of green shoots. He will not fail to guide me to a place of rest where the water is at peace. He will bring my life back to me. He will lead me along wagon tracks of fair dealing. He would not be who he is if he did otherwise. I tell you, Though I have cause to walk through the valley of deadly darkness, there is nothing fearsome there, nothing for me to fear. Because of you, you there with me, your weapon and your crook, I see them and I know I am safe. You arrange a feast on a table where I sit, though my enemies loom on the other side. You refresh my head by bathing it in oil. You fill my cup again and again. Certainly goodness and unfailing mercy will chase after me everywhere I go as long as I exist, and I will live in the Lord's house through all my length of days. That's wonderful. I love it. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Um, so can you can you talk about some choices uh, that you had to make there? Um, um, the uh, the one, one that stands out to me, uh, not just the first verse, but in the third verse, the wagon tracks of fair dealing. Um, I just, I love that. Um, you know, t- to imagine the ruts uh, that are ground in over, um, uh, you know, use and weather and, you know, uh, the variation of wet and dry, all those things kind of come to mind um, uh, when I read that. But, but, um, Anyway, what are some points uh, in this uh, translation that stand out to you as being um, difficult or interesting? Okay, well, um, you know, uh, just to start out in the in the first verse, you know, uh, I think it's a lot more accurate to say the Lord is the one pasturing me, 
um, because um, it's uh, how are we, the one pastoring me. <laughs> and that's how they said shepherd. They used participles um, for most of, you know, ordinary occupations. You know, you're not, say, a tailor. You're the, the sewing one, for just for example. Um, and you're not a shepherd. You're the one, you know, pastoring, pastoring the sheep. Um, so this is how they, it, it's a very elemental way, way of, of, of describing the, the distribution of, of, of tasks. So, you know, this um, first part, at least of, of the 23rd Psalm, is from the, the view of the sheep. And the sheep, um, you know, doesn't know anything about human society, it doesn't know that, you know, this guy is hired to be the shepherd, you know, and it has this, this um, calling. Uh, and that, you know, this is sort of a, this is a matter of human administration of resources. No, he knows, the sheep knows the one who's pasturing him. Um, and um, so I thought that was really important to to emphasize. And um, then in, in verse 2, um, it's the hifio, uh, that's the, a, a verb form, I mean, it's a causative verb form, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you force someone to do something. It's you, you cause someone to do, to do something. So you would invite somebody to dinner, for example, and that would be, you'd, you'd use a fill for that. Um, so uh, you, you don't, you know, make the, the sheep lie down. The sheep wants to stretch out, lie down comfortably. So, so the, the, um, the shepherd... Uh, the one pastoring invites them to stretch out, and it's not uh, just just uh, green pastures. There's image of green shoots. So you gotta go. I think in, in in translating Hebrew, you have to just go very carefully through the lexicon and the um, you know other places in the Bible where a certain word is used, and um, tease out the imagery. Because the imagery is really precise where, say, livelihood is concerned, where they're talking about the natural environment. You know, they got to know exactly, you know, what kind of water course is this? You know, will it be here next month? So is it a, is a wadi? You know, is, is, is it a, a dry riverbed? Or is it a river that flows all year? Or, or and, and what's the kind of vegetation? Is it green shoots? Is it is this spring vegetation or is it late vegetation? And they've, they've got all this stuff marked in their vocabulary, and then I think it's necessary to um, deal with it both precisely and poetically. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. I've, uh, uh, I've shared this with a number of people and they're, they're very struck by it too. Um, um, uh, so I, I really wish we had more time to explore some of the other um, examples that you go over um, in your book. I am, it's, it's impressive to watch how effortlessly you move through these things and render them so well for a general audience. I mean, I know I've certainly benefited from your observations in this book, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, again, it, it, it brings to mind that, uh, you know, that most commentaries seem inadequate to the task uh, since they're often re referring to a much smaller orbit of 
usage and context, whereas you draw on a very wide uh, range of comparative literature. Um, you know, is this, you know, what other helps can, um, can people have in addition to study Bibles, you know, to be able to see some of these things that they're missing in the original? Is there anything, uh, obviously your book is a place to start, but do you have any other recommendations for how short of learning the, uh, the original languages? Is there, are there helps that you found that, um, are good for students of the Bible? Oh gosh, you know it, it is really tough to to make recommendations. Um, I I do think that you know if people um, if people have any time you know that they could devote to a, a class in in Hebrew or in in Greek, um, you know they should they should do that because the um, uh, the reference literature is um, really difficult to handle if you don't have um, the alphabet, the grammar, the basics. Um, you know, the, the words will simply, they're not presented to you in any, in any way you can make you can make sense of. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. Even I, the, I, I, I just, oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, it's, it's even difficult to follow an interlinear uh, edition of the Bible. Um, uh, you know, I, the New Testament is often set up to have the Greek word order, you know, mimicked in English. Um, but even some of those are hard to follow without knowing um, the the underlying structure. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the gold standard is um, academic classes mm -hmm. in, in, in these languages. And uh, but, I, you know, I do understand that um, many, many people do, just do not have have time and you know that's um um that's no reflection on the seriousness of their interest in in the bible and so i i have provided a, a, you know just a very inferior introduction hmm. to to these languages you know within uh within two covers i mean hmm. within uh within a single book yes that's excellent um, well that's why i'm heartily recommending the face of the water as much as i have been recommending Paul Among the People, you know, few books have really helped me to unsettle some assumptions that I had about a biblical author in the case of Paul or language in general that we all take for granted in our English uh, translations. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, uh, I know our traditional question. You're very welcome. Oh, My yeah. pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, your, our traditional question at the close of each program is, what are you working on now? I am working on a new translation of the Gospels. Oh, okay. And how? When will that be published? Well, it's it's not clear. I uh, um, depends on when I finish it. I've, okay. I've got two years, um, so I hope to I hope to finish sooner because the Gospels, of course, are, are not a lengthy work. Um, so. It's, it might be out in two and a half years. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, uh, it's there's a there's a venerable list of single author translations of the Bible or the Gospels. And um, are you? I'm wondering. Are you? Uh, ha have any of those previous translations inf influenced your own approach, or are you studiously avoiding them? <laughs> 
I'm studiously avoiding. You're them. studiously avoiding them. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, it is. It is already so so easy to to read over things in, in an ancient language, mm-hmm. um, particularly in important famous passages, and you know the the, the words are part of you. You know, you, you learn them so young. Um, you learn an English translation. And, you know, one thing that I, I find, you know, particularly mortifying about the, the uh, my, my handling of the 23rd Psalm is that I, I didn't make an essential correction, and that's in the final verse of the this, this song. Um, I, will, I will live in the Lord's house through all my length of days. That's what I, that's how I did it. That, you know, as uh, a Hebrew instructor of mine pointed out to me afterwards, uh, yes, that is the, the default traditional translation, but it's not what it means. Um, the, the verb is return to um, the Lord's house. Hmm. And whether that Hebrew is corrupt or what, or what that actually means about returning to the the um, Lord's house, if the Hebrew is is genuine, I I I do not know, but it's it's very clear that in our standard Hebrew Hebrew text, it means the verb is is return. It is not dwell. They look the verbs look really similar, and I read straight over it. Um, yeah. So that's the that's the kind of thing that can happen. In the forthcoming translation of the Gospels, will there be commentary also, or or just the translation and an introduction? Oh yes, uh, uh, quite a few, quite a few footnotes, but not you know heavy, lengthy academic footnotes. Um, more um, just guides to what what's particularly interesting um, in in a particular verse. Right, right. One thing I appreciate so much about Robert Alter's translation of the uh, books of Moses is, you know, his attention in the commentary to um, some of the literary allusions or uh, the uh, word choices, puns, uh, you know, uh, sounds, the way things sound in the original uh, that really make that text uh, a lot more alive in the, in the English. Um, So I'm looking forward to your uh, forthcoming translation. Um, So, Thank you. Yes. Thank um, you so much. All right. Well, thank you for the, your time today, and take care. That concludes my conversation with Sarah Rudin about her new book, The Face of Water, a translator on beauty and meaning in the Bible, published in February 2017 by Pantheon Books. Please join us again for another episode of New Books in Biblical Studies.